Have you ever heard the, the saying that your bedroom is a picture of your marriage? Your bedroom is a picture of your marriage. Now, I know I've lost you for a second because you've all kind of, your mind has gone to your bedroom, you're in the what? Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, therapists use this all the time. Uh, most bedrooms are like the island of misfit toys, right? Everything just kind of finds its way back to the bedroom. And if you don't believe that, uh, wait till the next time the, the door, doorbell rings and somebody unexpected shows up. Where does everything go? It kind of just always ends up in our bedroom. So I thought I'd, I'd show you a picture of uh, my bedroom. And, and, then I, and then I thought, you know, I really like sleeping in my own bed. So uh, we'll, we'll just move on from that. <laughs> but you know what? Clutter, clutter's a funny thing, right? Clutter's a really funny thing. It sneaks up on us. It hinders us. It causes us a lot of stress and strain. Uh, even technology can bog down when it's overwhelmed with clutter. Here's a picture I'm going to show you. This is a picture of my, my desktop. And it's overwhelming, right? I mean, people can't believe that that's what my desktop looks like. And you know what? I like it just the way it is. <laughs> and I can find things pretty darn quickly. But I do know, and I, I've made it a goal this year to clean this mess up, even though I can find things really quickly, it, it's, it's not efficient. And, and it really does cause stress and strain in my work life. So clutter, it can happen in our minds as well, right? We, we get haunted over all this stuff, regrets of the past. We get overwhelmed with our present chores and duties, and then looking into the future, we get this anxiety about what is going to come. So this decluttering that we have to do is past, present, and future, and, and that's kind of where I want to take us this morning. You know, Vince Lombardi, 50 years ago, won a Super Bowl, maybe a little bit more than 50 years, and he came into the locker room the next season, and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. They had just won a championship. But he came in and he said, I don't want you thinking that you're the greatest. I don't want you believing everything that they're saying about you. I want you to get down to the basics, unclutter everything that you believe. This man is a football, and then they won another championship that year. Decluttering is, is really, it's really important. Because what we believe about God our thoughts, our feelings about God, we're, we're getting things crammed into our minds from all sorts of places, from the world, from well-meaning, even believers, from godly grandmothers. All kinds of messages are getting shoved into our minds, and, and we start to say, well, maybe that is true. And, and we start to get all discombobulated with, you know, what is the main thing? And of course, we know what the main thing is, and, and that's what Vince Lombardi was trying to do. Let's get back to the main thing. So here we are in the book of Philippians, and this is a letter written by Paul while he was in prison. And at the start of the letter, Paul's cry, his deep prayer, is for the Philippians to go deep. He really wanted them to be deep believers. He wanted them to be deeply rooted in maturity and insight and wisdom and their righteousness through their relationship with God through Christ. And, and then in chapter 3, where we're going to focus today, he's got to do some decluttering. He's got to do some cleaning out of some things that have got into the Philippian church. And he's going to focus the church and the people on this one thing. And he's going to come down to, there's one thing I do. This is his great Vince Lombardi speech. There's one thing that I do. But before he gets there, 
he's got to declutter all this stuff that's going on in the church. Because what was happening at the church at that time where we had two groups of people, two opposing forces that were, were putting views into the Philippians, into, into that church. And I have to tell you, these are the same things going on today. There really isn't much different. They're just called something different. Back in, the, in that day, they, they had these Pharisee types. They were the rule followers. They, they had pride in all the effort that they were doing, and, and, and they thought that they had to follow the Old Testament uh, rituals and laws and things like circumcision, and that's the way that they were going to be accepted before God. And they were saying, everybody else, you've got to do this too if you want to be free and accepted. And then you had the other side. And, and they, they were saying, rules, that's irrelevant. It, it, rules don't mean anything. In fact, it's the exact opposite, this other side was saying. They believed that our, our physical bodies really didn't matter because it was all about the spiritual. Salvation wasn't found in rules. Salvation came through this sort of divinely revealed esoteric knowledge that just kind of came down. And, and as you, you gained this insight and knowledge, you elevated upward. And so the really strange thing about Gnosticism, as it was called, it was the sense that there really wasn't morality. You and I understand right versus wrong, but in Gnosticism, there was no right versus wrong because things were fluid as you gained a higher level of spiritual development. So here's your, your two opposing forces that, that Paul's stepping in the middle and, and he has got to clean this up in order to move the Philippian church forward to the one main thing. So if you want to follow along, we are in Philippians 3, and he begins with, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. So as we go through this, Paul's right now, right now he's talking about that, that Pharisee type over here. He's talking about those, those people who were following the Jewish rules and traditions and believed that you had to follow these rules to be accepted by Christ. And, and if we think about that for a second, what, he's, what they're saying is that Jesus just isn't enough. You, you need to follow the rules. That's where salvation is found. And of course, that's evil. I mean, that is not what the gospel preaches. So he's getting in there, and he wants to declutter that message. So he says, for it is we who are the circumcision. That might be the strangest compliment we ever receive. I don't know if you've ever been called a circumcision before, but that's what Paul is doing. You know, and, and so what he's saying here, and we know this, you know, for the Jewish boys, for them to be included in the Jewish nation and God's people, um, they had to be circumcised at the right place at the right time, and it was part of them being accepted. So what Paul's saying here is this. He's saying, no, no, we, believers, we are God's people. We are the ones who are accepted. It's we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in our flesh. And now Paul is going to put a stamp on this letter right here, right now. He's going to put his money where his mouth is, and he is going to tell the Philippians that he has credibility to speak to them in this way, in this sort of, we've got to unclutter this mess. He is going to go through this litany of his past. He's going to say, 
though I myself have reasons for such confidence. What he's saying right there is, if anyone can boast about the flesh and doing well and, and what I've achieved, it is, it is I, it is me. If someone else thinks they have a reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have so much more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. I'm an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, if you want to know. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I'm a Pharisee. There's nobody who is more educated than me. As for zeal, persecuting the church, no one was a better persecutor of the church than I. As for the righteousness based on the law, I was faultless, I was blameless, I was perfect before God's eyes. What, what is all this? What is Paul doing? I think he's saying, hey, hey, look, I've been down this road before, Philippians. I've been down this road before. I had to declutter, unlearn, or as Tim talked about last week, untwist all this wrong thinking to find my way back to the main thing. Prior to coming to Christ, Paul gained comfort in, in who he was. You know, he, he had all these strokes for belonging and we can relate to that for the things that we feel like we belong to, whether it's our family or clubs or work environments. He, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He got strokes from excelling. He had a PhD in Jewish law and rituals. He got strokes from perfection, or, as, or so he thought, from be, being blameless and law-keeping. And then he met Christ. Then he met Christ on the road to Damascus. And Christ told Ananias just how much Paul was going to have to suffer. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Clutter prevents us from focusing on the main thing. And now here in Philippians, Paul begins to prepare himself for that approach. He begins to prepare himself for that one thing, which now is knowing Christ and sharing in his suffering. The way that he prepared himself, he lays out for us in, in verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, that, that was verse 5 and 6 that we just read, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. See, Paul must move out all this old way of thinking, and he must unlearn everything that he once believed in. I mean, he really is going through this decluttering of his past, he, he's standing in the upper echelons of religious society as a Pharisee. He's this rigorous lawkeeper, and it gives him this sense of moral pride that nobody can really compare to. And now, now he's got to prepare for the suffering, for this path. And everything, his, all his core values have to be completely shifted. I don't know why I thought of this, but we, we know Disney. Many of us love Disney. We grew up with Disney. And, and just imagine if 100 years ago, Disney's core values and mission was, we make nightmares real. You know, imagine that. And then they say, oh, wait a minute. You know what? Let's, let's think of this. No, let's, let's change it to, we make dreams come true. That's kind of what's going on here with Paul. I mean, it's a complete 180 degrees reversal of what he lived for, what he believed in, what he, he really got stroked by. So what, what does Paul do? Well, I mean, he talks about it in the sense of gains and losses, which we can imagine is kind of like a ledger. For those of us who, who love accounting, it's debits, it's credits, it's profit, it's liability, it's income and expenses, or, or as Paul says, it's, it's really just gains and, and losses. So he looks at his life and he says, okay, here are the losses. Here's what I'm willing to give up. 
this prospect that the Jesus movement just might prove real. Now remember, Paul witnessed Stephen being stoned and martyred. He stood over to the right or the left, and the coats were laid at his feet. He knew something about this Jesus movement. And he said, you know what, I'm going to just count that as a loss, and I'm going to put my bet that that's not real. On the gain side, it was everything we just talked about. His heritage, he was a Pharisee, the privilege, the education, the pride, the accomplishments, and the excelling. So, so here's his ledger. And then he does what we just said. He says, everything that I counted as gain, I'm stamping as loss. And Christ, the prospect of that being true, I see it now. And that is what I'm living for. But he doesn't stop there. Because it goes on in verse 8, and he says, more than that, I count all things, all things, to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. When he met Christ on the road to Damascus, he stamped the one side lost, the other side gained. He reversed it. And now he says, you know what? It's not just those accomplishments that I felt good about. It's, it's everything else. It's all things. And, and the homework that we have, if I could give you homework, the homework that we have is we go home, we leave this place, and we need to identify the gains that we're hanging on to. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not my retirement. Mm-mm. That I'm going to keep and count on. That's my security. That's my last 20 years of my life. I'm not willing to give that up. And what Paul is saying is, stamp that as a loss. If I have your salvation in, the, in my hands, I'll take care of you in those last 20 years. And, and what else could it be for us? It could be our children. I'm not, I'm not willing to give, give that up. I'm not willing to let them live their own life. I'm going to be on top. No, no. I've got your children as well. Count. Count that as a loss. Let me take care of that. Your focus is to live for Christ. And if we are kidding ourselves, this is normal Christianity. This isn't just what Paul learned. With all apostolic authority, he says in Philippians 3.17, brethren, join in following my example. This is the example we are supposed to live. We have to declutter the present as well as the past. How do we live today? Not seeking comfort or confidence in what we've achieved. Not having confidence in, in myself, but my security, our security, rests in Christ. That's a decluttering of the present. And Jesus taught about this. We know these parables and these sayings very well. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found, and then he hid. And from joy over it, from joy over what he had found... He goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Or Jesus said, no one of you can be my disciple who does not take leave of all of his possessions. Now, these are great. These are wonderful. We've heard these a thousand times. It doesn't mean go buy yourself a field. It doesn't mean go home and burn everything you had or give it all away. I think we need to think about this. Well, what does it mean for me practically? What is Paul calling me to do? And I think it really means four things right here. And so the first thing I want us to think about is this. It means that whenever I am called to make a choice, and we're going to make a choice as soon as we leave this building, but whenever I'm called to make a choice, Christ will weigh my heart, and he will be my decision. Did you catch that? Christ will weigh my heart, and Christ will be my decision. Not Christ will be part of my decision-making. 
Christ will be my decision. That's the first thing it means, living out Christianity in a practical way. It's not about buying fields. It's about Christ is going to weigh my heart and he will be my decision. Think about that in terms of politics. Christ weighing your heart and him being your decision. Or social media, or who you date, or how, how, how you love. Or what we do with our time, or what we do with our money. Let Christ weigh our heart and let him be the decision. I will choose Christ. Second thing it means is that I will deal with things of this world. I'm only going to deal with things of this world if they draw me near to Christ. Period. I'm only going to deal with things of this world if they draw me near to Christ. If I don't gain more of Christ and enjoy more of him by the way I use this world, I'm going to avoid it. This, this is your Philippians 4 test, right? Paul's going to get into this in a, in a few chapters, one chapter, and, and it's going to be, think about this. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is excellent, whatever is praiseworthy, what are we supposed to do? Think of these things. Care about these things. So conversely, I think that means that if it's false, if it's a lie, if it's uh, unfair, if it's profane... Now think about that the next time we turn on Netflix. If it is profane, avoid it. If it doesn't cause praise, if there's no value, I'm going to avoid it. I'm going to pursue Christ in a practical way that it draws me near to him in every decision I make. Third thing it means, people will know what I treasure without any doubt. They don't have to wait for my funeral to know what I lived for. That's what it means. Your kids will see you pray. You will say a blessing over your wife. Sunday worship will trump sports and activities. I'm not gonna just serve God when it's convenient for me, when my kids are of that age and I'm gonna be where they are. If God's gifted me, I'm gonna serve him in the seasons of life he calls me. People will know what I treasure. Fourth thing, it means that if I lose all things in this world, I will never lose my joy or my treasure in Christ. This is the Job test. No matter what happens, this is hard because tragedy and suffering are real, but I'm going to remain in Christ. That's where Paul's taking us. Practical Christianity, choosing Christ, drawing near to Christ, treasuring Christ, and remaining in Christ. Paul goes on and says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Remember, he's preparing us for something here. And and ultimately, there's this moving forward that he's calling to prepare us for suffering, to prepare us for being uncomfortable. And and I think the same is true even for us as as a church. There's a preparation for decluttering of what we think we ought to be investing in, what we ought to be doing. We're about to do phase three, phase two, however we want to count it. It's going to be awesome. But our focus, our focus has to be on not just the building and the aesthetics, which are important. Our focus needs to be a hedge of protection around this pulpit for our pastor for what happens over there in children's church, what happens in Sunday school, for all the lives that come up and down Route 9, the hundreds and thousands of cars each day, that our mission, our hope, is to 
win souls for Christ. So we have a way about us in the West. We're all part of it, and there's nothing evil about it, but you know, there's this way of this Christian experience that, that's comfortable for us. And we do, we want to make it as comfortable as possible. We've got wonderful, comfortable seating. We, we have fellowship. We have baked goods in between the service, cups of coffee, people that come, and, and we have smiles, and we give them goodie bags, and maybe even a, a brand new coffee mug as they leave. We talk nice, preach nice, preach about love, preach about being nice. But I, I think we've got to be careful here. We've got to pay attention and clean out all this clutter and consider what we're winning lost souls to. And I'm telling you, we're not being called to win lost souls to comfort. You know, Jesus didn't invite us or call us to win people to a comfy church or lifestyle. If we took Jesus at his word, it would be something like this. Brothers and sisters, they hated me. They hated me. And if we are going to live a life and follow Jesus in his footprints, if we're going to talk about Jesus and sin the way he talked about it, and if we're going to talk about salvation only through Christ, friends, people are going to be against us. It's going to be uncomfortable. We're going to be persecuted, and it's going to be difficult. And that's okay, because we are not called to comfort. If we're trying to win people to this sort of easy, comfortable version of, of Christianity, well, let's be careful what we get. We shouldn't be surprised that no Christians are willing to take a risk. No Christians are willing to lead with faith. We shouldn't be surprised that we're, we're viewed by this outside world as this strange entity and, and not-so-powerful force of love. There's nothing wrong with all that I described. I love our church. I love the freedoms that we have. But we, we, all churches in this valley who preach the truth, have to be careful what we're calling lost souls to. And it can't be the main thing. Comfort can't be the main thing. The main thing is knowing Christ deeply and following him. And that's what Paul's trying to do here. You know, the Philippian church, they didn't have the bells and whistles and the amenities that we have. They were under severe persecution, severe persecution. And they believed the main thing Christ Jesus was worth dying for. Comfort can be an enemy because it can lead to complacency. And I think when you get into complacency, you're very, very vulnerable. We know this from relationships very well. The beginning of a relationship is so exciting, whether that's a relationship with your loved one or a relationship with Christ. Very, very exciting. You are pursuing. You are asking questions. You are all in, and you're spending time with each other, and it is so exciting. But then comfort sets in, and we tend to lose our focus, and we take each other for granted, whether that's your spouse or whether that's, yeah, yeah, I, I know, Christ is there. He's my Lord and Savior. I know. But what happens is, in either relationship, the two people start to go on parallel paths, right? Parallel paths. You know the person's there, but you're just kind of walking ahead in parallel paths. Well, that's not the way that God intended our relationship. We are supposed to be intersecting with Christ constantly, not these parallel paths. And, and we know that happens in, in marriage. We just are coexisting, bumping into each other. Mm, well, I know you're there. But that's dangerous. That's a dangerous way to pursue a relationship. Look at these words he's saying. Knowing Christ, gaining Christ, and being found in Christ. That can't happen on 
parallel paths. That happens when lives are intersecting and we are, we are intersecting with God's word through prayer. We're intersecting with God's people through corporate worship and fellowship, intersecting through the way we serve Christ Jesus our Lord. We have to be careful of living this very comfortable Christian life. Paul goes on and he says, I want to know Christ. Now, oh, the Gnostics, amen, buddy, preach it. Yes, it's all about knowledge, all about higher level thinking. So yes, it's all, and then he goes on and says, I want to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his suffering. Now the Gnostics are like, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> I really looked at this as a license to sin, and you're telling me participating in sufferings? Now, now the Gnostics are, are backing out. But this is what Paul is saying. We're going to know the powers of his resurrection. We're going to participate in his sufferings. We're going to become like him in his death. And, and we're going to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Well, let's focus on this one thing that just jumps out. I want to know the power of the resurrection. Here's what Paul is saying. He's, he's not just talking about the power of the resurrection on the last day. That's amazing and that's awesome. And that's part of it. But Paul wants us to know in the present, decluttering all this mess, there is power right now that we can attain, that we can take part in. And that's the power that blesses us today. It's the power that gives stronger faith. It's the power that gives supernatural strength through times of grief and, and healing. It's the power to hold us up with hope while others might implode. It's the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead. It's the same power that allowed him to endure the cross. And Paul's saying, I want to know that power. And he wanted to participate in Christ's sufferings. There's something pretty amazing that happens when you're willing to suffer. And I think every marriage, that should be what it is. There ought to be suffering with no joke. There should be suffering in every single marriage, every single relationship, because that's the model Christ gave us. Sacrifice, suffer, hold that other person up. You know, a marriage can't be, I'm in it as long as you please me. No, I'm in it to serve, to sacrifice, to suffer for Christ. That was the model he gave us. So there's something amazing that happens when we're willing to suffer. People who are willing to suffer have an enormous capacity to love enormous capacity to love. I mean, if you're willing to suffer, what amazing capacity to love comes from your heart for the other person and for Christ. People who are willing to suffer also have an enormous amount of hope, enormous amounts of hope. There's a reason why they're willing to step in and suffer. They see something beyond it. But there's a third thing people that are willing to suffer can achieve. And it has something to do with what we share it's a kind of power that is only created by a shared experience. If you think about soldiers who go to war and they come back, they're bonded, aren't they? They've shared, they've lived an experience. Or cancer survivors, they've lived through something challenging that only those two who've lived through it can understand and relate to. They are bonded. Or missionaries, they go overseas or wherever they go and they're serving the group of people. They're bonded to the people they serve. But there's something else happening. The missionaries are bonded to each other because of what they've just experienced, the power of Christ working through them into the lives of those that they're serving. So when we step forward and we're willing to suffer as Paul's calling us to, we are bonded to Jesus. There's a bond there that is unbreakable. 
Paul goes on and says, not that I've already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. And here it comes. Here's his Vincent Lardy speech. But the one thing I do, the one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, declutter your past, straining forward to what lies ahead. I know there might be some here today that there's something holding you back from moving forward to a relationship with Jesus or to just sinking deeper into Jesus. You know, maybe, you know, for so many people, it's, it's this big, egregious sin that I can't get out of my head. It haunts me. Maybe it's your heritage, your upbringing, or, or your experiences with, with religion. I know all of these things, they have some really deep-seated roots. I get that. And sometimes, we just need permission to let them go. Well, here it is. In Paul's words, one thing I do, one thing I forget what is behind me. The cross is dealt with that. I forget what is behind me. I strayed forward to what is ahead, and I press on toward the goal. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. We're not all on the same path. I get that. But we move forward, we press on, we keep learning about Jesus, discovering about Jesus, how he delights in us and how we can adore and love him through all eternity. Paul's going to conclude by saying, follow my example. That was verse 17, follow my example. And then he's going to give these last words, these last biographical encouragement. And I want you to read this in a way that that Paul is reading it. As often as I told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, even with tears. I know we overlook that and say, well, he's crying. Okay. But think about why, why he's crying here. Paul remembers who he was before he met Christ. He remembers that he was living as an enemy. He was persecuting other Christians. He was really good at it. So now he's writing this with tears. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul's saying, I certainly did. Their destiny was destruction. Mine certainly was. Their God was their stomach. Oh, how I thought so much of myself. And their glory is in their shame. That whole list of things he wrote in in verse 5 and 6. Their mind is set on earthly things. Remember that for Paul, it used to all be about belonging, excelling, and perfection. He's now decluttering the future, and he's saying, But our citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven. We all know that that earthly things die, they perish, they break down, they go away. So why would we ever plant our flags here on earth? And, And so Paul says, our citizenship, just so that you're clear, you're understanding where you're going, your citizenship is in heaven. And now the really cool thing is who he was writing to. He's writing to the Philippians. We have to remember that. When, when he speaks to them in this term of citizenship, it's a tremendous word picture for them to think about who was among them, and it was the Romans, because they were occupied by Rome. Rome had, had done this in many places, but little strategic military points planted, and then they bring their citizens, and now they're under Roman law. And, and now you've got all these Philippians walking around. And when he says citizenship, it resonates with them 
Because these Romans would walk around for sure, and it was clear that they were Romans by the way that they dressed, by the way that they talked, by the laws that they followed, by the justice that, that they served. It was clear that they were Romans and so easily identified. So when he says citizenship, this pops up into the, the Philippians' mind of what does it mean to be a citizen? And, and so Paul says this, he's, he's communicating this, just like the Roman colonists, that's what they were, will never let you forget that they're Romans. We can never stop forgetting that we are citizenships in heaven. We belong to God. We belong to Christ. Let your conduct match your citizenship, Philippians. You know, ladies and gentlemen, this is Jesus. This is who we're following, the author, the perfecter of our faith, our creator, our redeemer, our savior, and what a privilege we get to call him our friend. Forget what is behind Declutter the past, strain forward to what is ahead, declutter the present, and move forward with all glory, knowing we share in Christ's glory. Let that be our future. Amen. Lord Jesus, we, we do love you, we thank you, we give you great praise. We ask you, Lord, to equip us, prepare us, sustain us, Lord, to live a life that is worthy of our calling, to be children of God, adopted into the fold of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. All praise to you in Jesus' name. Amen.